The scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 18 to chapter 19, verse 8. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it, and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day. But today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. 
And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth, and he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased." Now, therefore, arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, peace to God. Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, we have heard in this reading this morning the announcement of good news. 
And I pray this morning that we would hear afresh the announcement of good news concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and his death in our place, in his resurrection, in his promise of righteousness and peace and his gift of eternal life. Would you confirm us in the peace, in the righteousness, in the life of our Savior this morning as we consider this word? For we ask it in his precious and powerful name. Amen. Well, I know it was a longer reading this morning, but it was a pretty exciting reading. There's a lot going on there. And I think I mentioned last week, you know, if this were a movie, this section of the story of the life of David, this is exciting, what's happening. And as you're reading it on a human level and you're considering the experience of the people involved, there are all kinds of twists and turns, there are all kinds of ironies. Things don't go as planned. And that's one thing you notice as you're reading through this account. Things aren't going as planned. David originally, he wants to go into battle with the troops, but then his men say, no, don't go into battle with us. Then he gives orders for his men to deal gently with Absalom, but when Joab finds him, he very quickly and mercilessly puts him to death. We read that Absalom had built a monument to himself to commemorate his name. But then there's a second monument that commemorates his shameful death, his shameful end. Then there's this conversation about who's going to run and deliver the good news. And Joab doesn't want Ahimeas to give the good news. He wants the Cushite to run and give the good news. And so he goes first, but then Ahimeas takes a, a shortcut. He gets there first to deliver the good news. And then on a day when there's meant to be a great victory and there's meant to be rejoicing, David is weeping and wailing and so that the troops coming back from battle, rather than coming back in victory with joy, they come back ashamed. They have to steal back into the city. So on a human level, nothing's going according to plan. There's twists and there's turns. And when we read these accounts, I mentioned this last week, but... We're interested in these characters. We're interested in Absalom. We're interested in David. We're interested in Joab. Joab is indeed an interesting character to consider. We're interested in Ahimeas and the Cushite. We want to consider what their lives and what their actions say to us. But the fact that nothing goes according to what the people involved are planning and scheming reminds us that our focus and our attention, as we read this text, is on God and what he's doing. And in fact, we saw last week, God, uh, the, the narrator of the text, makes it clear to us that we need to pay attention to God's presence and God's work in this story. Remember what we read. The Lord had ordained the defeat of the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that, for this reason so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. We saw that last week, that 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 14. The Lord ordained that Absalom would be harmed. The Lord ordained this shameful end for Absalom. And we know that as we're reading this. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. Yes, on the human level, everything is not going according to plan, but according to God's plan, it's not frustrated. It is happening just as he ordained. Absalom meets his end. But notice what David orders his troops. 
deal gently with Absalom. And when they hear that, they say, we need to protect Absalom. So this text presents us with a contradiction. God has ordained the death of Absalom. He has ordained harm for Absalom. David has ordered that Absalom be protected, that his troops deal gently with Absalom. So we need to consider that, that contrast, that contradiction. We have God's ordained justice on the one hand, and we have David's feelings and his grief on the other hand. And the question to us is, do our feelings contradict God's justice, contradict God's word? So we need to consider that this morning. But there is a deeper meaning and significance to this text. About one-third of all of the references to good news in the Old Testament appear in this text. And notice you have two witnesses, two men running to deliver this good news. And this is a signal to us. Hidden within this narrative is the gospel. And what we see happening with Absalom, hung on a tree, pierced, thrown in a pit, covered by stones, anticipates what will happen to our Lord Jesus. He too will be hung on a tree. He too will be pierced. He too will be thrown into a pit. He too will be covered with a stone. So that's where we need to, that's where we need to go today, to the gospel. We need to hear that too. But first, we must consider God's justice and David's feelings. So it's clear, God has ordained harm for Absalom. He has ordained this end for Absalom. David, on the other hand, says, no, let's deal gently with Absalom. We must protect Absalom. Now, we've already been told this is what God has planned for Absalom. This is what God has ordained for Absalom. And this is an exercise in God's justice, God's judgment on Absalom. The reason that God has ordained this end for Absalom is twofold. On the one hand, his law clearly requires this end for Absalom. And on the other hand, his promise to David requires this end for Absalom. Because he promised David, I will raise up one of your sons after you when you've died. I will establish him. He will make a house for my name. That's what I'm doing with your son. Absalom does not do that. He raises himself up. He establishes his own kingdom. He seeks the death of the anointed king David. And he sets up monuments for his own name. Absalom's God's enemy. And scripture is clear. The way of the wicked will perish. The way of God's enemies will perish. And the manner in which Absalom died and the way in which his death is reported shows us the outworking of God's justice. Now, God's justice is retributive. Retributive. Simply put, what that means is the punishment fits the crime. And in the New Testament, we read the same. You will reap what you sow. God is not mocked. And we see God's retributive justice worked out in history, and we will see it on the last day. And we see it here in the life of Absalom. And I mentioned last week that the, the great sins of Absalom were a desire for vengeance and vanity, vain glory, a desire to elevate his own name. And it was precisely those sins that led him down a path that led to this shameful end. First of all, his vengeance. He is in, in vengeance. He listened to the advice of Hushai who said, don't just take out David. You raise up an army and you take them all out. Everyone loyal to David. Kill them all. No one left. 
Absalom said, yes, that's what I'm doing. He's a man of vengeance. And so he goes to battle against the troops of David. And we read in verse 9 that it happened. He happened to meet the servants of David. Now this is a little clue when you're reading Old Testament narrative. Especially when you're reading the, the historical books, Ruth and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. That little phrase, and it happened... That makes us think like, oh, it just sort of happened. It was a coincidence. Look what happened. But actually, that's a clue. It's telling us God's providence, God's sovereignty is at work here. It's telling us what is happening is according to God's sovereign purposes. It happened that he met David's troops. And he's running through the forest. Because of his vengeance, he was led to his death. But notice the manner of his death. His head was caught in the thicket. His head was caught in the branches of that oak tree. Now, this is God's judgment on his vainglory. Absalom sought to raise his own head. He's raising monuments to his own name. He sought the adoration of the people. He stole the hearts of the people. He loved the praise and he loved the attention that he got from the people. And he was known for his beautiful, heavy, dark locks of hair. And his big head, his raised head, with his thick hair, gets stuck in a tree. The reason he's that high is because he's riding on a mule. He's riding on a donkey. And that's significant. In Israel, it was the princes and it was the king who rode on donkeys, who rode on mules. He had claimed for himself the throne. The mule symbolized his throne. He'd elevated himself. That's why Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. He's the king. And because he's elevated himself on the throne, his head gets caught in the branches. God judges his vanity, his vain glory. And then the manner of his death reveals who he is in the eyes of God. So he is caught in a tree. He's hung in a tree. Verse 9, he was suspended between heaven and earth. Well, the mule that was under him went on. The mule takes off. His throne is gone. But he's hung in a tree. He's suspended between heaven and earth. And we read in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Well, that's Absalom. He's cursed. And we're told he's hanging there between heaven and earth between heaven and earth. The earth has rejected him. The earth wants nothing to do with him. Heaven won't receive him. He's stuck there. And eventually he ends up where he belongs, in the pit. But as he's hanging there, notice the manner of his death. He is pierced. He's run through with the javelins, and then those ten soldiers come in, and they pierce him. And then he is thrown into that pit, a great pit. And that is, there there are rocks piled on top of him, and that is a monument to his shameful death. And later generations, as they were going through that forest, they saw that great pile of stones. And they knew what it meant. And kids, think about this. You're walking through the forest one day. You, You go for a walk. You go for a hike with your parents. And you see this big pile of stones. Dad, what's that? That's where Absalom met his end. And you hear the story of Absalom. And he's not the first one in the Bible who is hung on a tree and then thrown into a pit and covered 
with stones. You read in the book of Joshua, there are a number of references in the book of Joshua either to rebels within Israel who rise up and and, and seek to take power, who are then hung, hung on trees and put in pits and covered with stones, or enemies of Israel that oppose God's kingdom. They, they too are hung on trees, they're put in pits with stones piled on top of them. Absalom joins the ranks of God's accursed enemies. This is God's justice. This is the ordained end for Absalom. Now, there is a warning here for those of you who have grown up or you're growing up in the church. And I'm looking at the younger people here. I'm looking at the kids, the teenagers, the young adults. Some of you have grown up in the church. Absalom grew up in the family of God. He grew up in the kingdom of God. But his desire for vengeance, his vanity, took hold of his life and it led him to be an enemy of God. An outcast. He was accursed. He met that shameful, bloody end. And it's a warning to you that have grown up in the church don't just assume, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the family. And don't just presume, well, you know, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm okay, you know. My parents are faithful. I, I, I've been taught these things when I was younger, and I still kind of believe them. But you start to live your life the way you want. Beware the way of Absalom. He wasn't the first to wander and then go down a path that led to his destruction. So that's God's justice. Then we have David's feelings. God ordained harm for Absalom, but David says to his men, deal gently with the young man, Absalom. Protect him. Keep him safe. Now we understand David's feelings here, but David also knew the word of God. And yes, we as the readers are told... Specifically, God has ordained harm for Absalom. We're told that specifically. We know that. That wasn't specifically told to David the way it's been told to us, but David knew that because he knew the word of God. He knew the law of God and he knew the promises of God. God's law required Absalom's death. Absalom was condemned under God's law. David knows God's law. He meditated on it day and night. He delighted in it. He loved God's justice. Absalom is a murderer. Absalom is a blasphemer. Absalom is guilty of sexual immorality. Absalom is a traitor. David knows what God's law says concerning Absalom. He knows that God has ordained his death. He knows that from the law of God. He also knows it from the promises of God. He knows it from the covenant promise that God made to him about his own household. He knows that Absalom is not the fulfillment of God's promise to raise up a son after him, to establish his throne, one who will make a house for his name. He knows that. He knows that Absalom is directly opposed to that promise. So David knows the word of God. Yes, it wasn't revealed to him as it's revealed to us, God has ordained harm, but actually he knew it. It was revealed to him. He knew the law of God. He knew the promise of God. But in the crisis... He doesn't 
see the situation. He doesn't see Absalom in the light of God's word. He sees it in the light of his own guilt and his own feelings. And because of that, he is detached. He is blind and he is deaf to the saving work of God on display right in front of him. He doesn't see it. He doesn't hear the good news that's reported to him. By the way, if he had eyes to see and if he had ears to hear, that report of good news would have, would have lifted his heart, lifted his spirits in the midst of the grief over his son. But he's blind to it. He's detached from the reality of what God is doing. And so he doesn't hear the good news that comes to him. And here I just want to reread that section of our text. Notice that he's looking for a report. He's looking for news. And it is significant that there are two witnesses that come because according to Scripture, the truth is confirmed by the witness, by the testimony of two witnesses. Well, we've got two people coming with good news. And David, when he learns that it's Ahimeas that's running, he says in verse 27, he's a good man. He comes with good news. And then verse 28, and I'll read a bit. Then Ahimeas cried out to the king, all is well. And the word there that's translated well, it's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. All is shalom. All is peace and blessing and deliverance and salvation. All is shalom. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and he said, Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. David, all is shalom. Blessed be the Lord, your God. He's been faithful. He's demonstrated his love towards you. He's kept his word. He's delivered up the men that were against you. And the king said, He's not interested in any of that. Is it well, is it shalom with the young man Absalom? It's all he's concerned about. It's all he sees. Ahimeaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I did not know what it was. Ahimeaz knows that Absalom has died. He can't bring himself to deliver that news. Now, we learned something very important here. The whole news is the good news. Notice that what we're about to read. The Cushite delivers the good news. He says, I've got good news for you. And that good news includes the death of Absalom. Ahimeaz doesn't say, I've got good news for you. Because he's not, he can't deliver. He doesn't deliver the whole news, so it's not good news. And it's a reminder to us that the good news of the gospel, yes, is the announcement that the Son of God has become flesh. He has borne our sins. He was nailed to the cross. He bore the wrath of God. He bore our condemnation and our place. He was raised on the third day. He lives and reigns right now. And when we turn to him, we enter into his righteousness, his peace, his life. That's the good news. But we don't proclaim that without also proclaiming the dec- God's declaration of your state before God outside of Christ as a sinner, as a rebel against God. 
And we don't try to soften the message by saying, well, you know, God's wrath wasn't really poured out on Jesus on the cross. He didn't really bear the penalty of, of our sin. It was a demonstration of his love. We try, we try to soften the message, soften the good news. Well, David's response is, turn aside. That should be the response of people who get half a gospel. Turn aside. Let me hear the whole thing. Bring me a second witness to tell me the whole gospel. And that's the Cushite. Behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good news. I've got good news because I've got the whole news. For my Lord, the King. The Lord has delivered you, yes. This day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? Is it peace for him? The Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Now, even the Cushite delivers that news in a way that is sensitive to David's state. But he delivers the news. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? And here this gives us an insight into the depth of David's grief. Would I have died instead of you? And ringing in David's ears is the word of the prophet Nathan to him. The sword will fall upon your household. And people from your own household will rise up against you because of your sin, because of what you did. And it's, it's not just the death of Absalom, but it is the guilt that David bears, knowing that it's because of my sin that all of this is unfolding. doesn't mean Absalom is not guilty. He is. But David recognizes the consequences of his own sin, the way it's affected other people. And he cries out again, Oh, Absalom, my, my son, my son. Now, we can, we can read Scripture, and we know what God has ordained. He has ordained the end of Absalom. We know that. We know the law of God. We've heard the promise of God. We look at this in the light of his word, and we think, David, come on. Submit to God's word. Submit to his justice. Accept this. And hear the good news. You've been delivered. He's restored your kingdom. He's he's conquered your enemies. And then we read on and we hear Joab, Joab's, you know, very direct rebuke of David. And that was a right rebuke. That's what David needed to hear. Joab is a complicated figure. That's what David needed to hear at that moment. But we may be tempted to read this at a distance and just have sort of a clinical approach to this and think, yeah, come on, David, you should know better. Get it together. But I would say very few of us have experienced the weight of the grief and the guilt that David carried. Amnon, well, his, his son with Bathsheba died as a baby. Amnon, Tamar, Absalom. David's children. Very few of us know the grief and the guilt that David carried. And it's not hard for us to hear him crying out, Absalom, my son, my son, and sympathize. 
with what he felt. But the narrative wants us to see that in the light of God's word and in the light of the gospel. And yes, we, we, we need to understand, and I don't think we can, but we, we, we should say, look, I get David's grief. I get his guilt on this. But we need, to see, we need to see it in the light of God's word and what God's word says. And it's a reminder to us there are moments in our life where we suffer. There are mo- there are, there's affliction that we go through. There's guilt that we carry. Which, which can so drag us down that we miss what God is doing right in front of us and we, we can't hear the word of the gospel. We can't hear the announcement of the forgiveness of our sins. We don't hear the announcement of his deliverance. And those of you today that are, that are bearing the weight of guilt for what you have done in the past, Remember as the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 was struggling with his own sin. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. The Apostle Paul had memories of what he had done also. Persecuted the church. Tore mothers and fathers away from their children to throw them into prison. He remembers that. He knows that's part of his past. But he he can declare at the beginning of Romans 1... Now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He knew that. The deliverance, the grace, the mercy of his Lord. And as we look out around the world, uh, at the world around us, there's lots that causes us to grieve. There's lots of affliction and suffering that we, we look at around us. And it is easy for us to let our feelings direct our thinking about those things. And we always need to remember what does God's word say about this. And right now, when you open your news feed, you probably get lots of stuff about COVID-19 and you get stuff about racial injustice and protests in the States. Now Paul does go on to say in Romans 8 that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. As we look out at the world around us, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. We should feel the pain and the suffering and the injustice of the world around us. We should feel that if we have the first fruits of the Spirit in us. But as we're watching that and as we're thinking about how the world is responding to these things, we need to be careful that we don't let the feelings of the world lead us in our thinking on these things. We need to be firmly anchored on the word of God. We need to see things clearly in the light of God's word. Now, right now, the loudest voice that is preaching and telling the world how to think about racial injustice is the Black Lives Matter movement. They have their own gospel, their own message of how we respond to this and how we think about it. And it's important that we recognize what they are saying and what that movement is calling for. And I just want to read a couple of their... their, their, This is from their statement of belief. This is what we believe. This is what we're working for. This is what we want for society. And this is what we want everybody to get on board and, and be with us on this. I'm just going to read a few things, and we need to see this and hear this in the light of God's word. So first they say, we are self-reflexive. 
Now, we are God reflexive. We respond to him. We listen to him. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women, who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. Now let's hear what they're calling for, and they want everybody on board with this. To do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege. Now, cisgender simply means this. I'm cisgender, according to this. So, my birth certificate says that I'm a male. I was born as a male. You know, that was was pretty easy to identify when I was born. And I, I see myself as a male. That means I'm cisgender. Now, if you're not cisgender, you may have been born a male, but you see yourself as a female or something else. Now, their work is to dismantle cisgender privilege. Because when they look at a society, they say, well, there seems to be, it seems to go well for people who are cisgender. Now let's remember what God's word says in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 28. He made them, he made them, he made you. He made them male and female. He made you female. He made you male. And then it says, and he blessed them. This is is simple. It's basic. He made you male and he blessed you as a male. He made you female and he blessed you as a female. He made them in his image, male and female, and he blessed them. Now this is saying we need to do the work of dismantling the blessing of that. That's what this is saying. Then it goes on to say this. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. The nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages, villages is in quotation marks, I'm not sure why, that collectively care for one another, especially our children. There's a concern for children here. To the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. I just want us to notice two things here. First of all, the idea that there's an extended family and there's a, there's a community around you that supports you and supports your children, that's a good thing. We believe that. But that's the church. But here, we need to disrupt the nuclear family. So the idea that there's a, a, a man, a woman, who, in the covenant of marriage, become husband and wife, they make promises to one another, They give themselves to one another in that covenant. They promise to have and to hold one another, to love and to cherish one another in sickness and health and good times and bad times, for rich or for poor. To love and to cherish one another. And there is a permanent covenant bond that joins them as man and woman, husband and wife. Now, this is as God has designed it. That's God, Jesus, when he's asked the question about divorce, says, well, let's go back to the beginning. God made them male and female. He joined them together, husband and wife. What God has joined, let no one separate. Remember, that's Jesus' answer. Go back again to Genesis 1. Well, part of the blessing of male and female is the blessing of children. Husband and wife, in the covenant of marriage, in the bond of marriage, in the security and love of that covenant, within that, God's design is that children be born. And children be raised up 
by their mother and father who are husband and wife, who have said to one another, I, I, will, I will never leave you nor forsake you, who give themselves to one another. They're joined in that bond of marriage. Within the security and the love of that covenant bond, God says children should be raised up. Now this is saying we need to disrupt that. That needs to be disrupted. So what is, what is basic to God's design for social order, social structure, they're saying needs to be disrupted. Marriage and family, as the Bible defines it, is, is the basic stitching that holds the social fabric together. And the way forward, as we look out and see the social fabric coming apart, the way to mend that is not to further tear apart the the seams of marriage and family as God has designed it and defined it. And then it it says, we foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Again, Genesis 1 is plain and clear. Heteronormative is the God-given norm and pattern. Now here's where this comes, and notice the concern for children in these statements. I want us to think about this. We have the seventh commandment forbidding adultery. In other words, we guard and protect that covenant of marriage between the husband and the wife. And then we have the fifth commandment. Children, honor your father and mother. For in doing so, it will go well with you, and you will live long in the land. Now, Paul says this is the first commandment with a promise. There's a promise attached to this one. And within God's design, children, as you grow up, honor your father and mother. And as you honor your father and mother, and as you grow up within that covenant family, in that covenant of marriage, under that covenant of marriage, as you honor them, it will go well for you. Now here's the point. God's word is plain and clear that if a society is going to flourish, if the society is going to know shalom, if all is going to be well, we need to promote and protect marriage and the family. That's basic. That is basic. And yes, I know we look out at the world and we see all kinds of injustice. And I recognize that many of our families don't look like this either. I know that. So it's not that we're totally detached from the pain of the world and the brokenness of the world. But it's easy to be moved by the protests and moved by the chants and think, yeah, we really need to do something and the Black Lives Matter movement is doing something. We need to listen to what they're really up to. And yes, we're moved, but that should move us to then turn to the word of God. And remember what Jesus said. He has commissioned us to go out to the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So we stand firm on the word of God, and we teach the nations everything that our Lord has commanded us. 
and the way forward and the only hope of righteousness, of justice, of salvation, of peace in our society is if they are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and they submit to everything that our Lord has commanded. That's the way forward. That's peace. That's righteousness. That's salvation. And this text points us to the righteousness and peace of Christ. And that's where I want to conclude. I mentioned already, a third of all the references to good news in the Old Testament are found in this text. And you've got two men running to announce good news. The good news of what's happened to Absalom, that's good news. And the reason that we have this reference to good news and the reason they are so eager to deliver the good news is because we have here the basic storyline of the gospel. So Absalom, the rebel, the accursed one, he's hanged on a tree, he's suspended between heaven and earth, he's rejected, he's despised, he's cursed. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And his cursed body is pierced and is thrown into a pit and it's covered by stones. And those stones are a memorial of his shameful and bloody death, his end. This is what happens to rebels. This is what happens to those who oppose God. This is exactly what happened to our Lord Jesus. He was hung on a tree, he was suspended between heaven and earth, he was pierced. He was thrown in the grave. He was put in the grave. There was a stone that covered him. But that stone is not a memorial to his shameful end. Remember what happened on the first day of the week. Early in the morning, while it was still dark, the women went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away. They found the tomb empty. They heard the announcement of the angels. He's not here. You could walk through that forest and see that pile of stones. Absalom is there. He's not here. He is risen. And remember what the Gospel of John tells us. In the evening, on the first day of the week, the doors being locked, for the disciples were in fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them, and he said to them, listen to his first words to them, peace be with you. All is well. All is peace. All is shalom. Shalom be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He showed them his hands and his side. His hands. I was, I was hung on a tree. I was hanged on a tree. His side. I was pierced. Just like Absalom. But he comes and he says, all is well. Shalom. Be with you. And here we have the answer to David's question. His concern is for the rebel, for the accursed one, for Absalom. Is it shalom with Absalom? Is it peace with Absalom? Is it peace with you this morning? And Jesus gives gives us the answer. All is well. Look at my hands. Look at my side. I died the death of Absalom. I died the death of the accursed one, the despised one. The rebel. And remember what the Apostle Paul says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13. 
He redeemed us. You are the accursed one. You're the one who deserved to be hanged on a tree. By becoming a curse for us, he died in your place and he comes to us and he comes to us this morning and he says, all is well, peace be with you. Look at my hands, look at my side. And that's why we come to the Lord's table every Sunday. And he says, take this bread. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take this cup, receive this cup. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So every Sunday as he, as he invites us to this table and he gives us this bread and this cup, this is the memorial. This reminds us all is well. My peace I give you. And we know coming to this table that yes, we were the accursed, we were the wicked, but in him we are made righteous. In him we have peace. And the society around us so desperately needs to hear that. To hear that announcement, yes, all is well because the Lord Jesus bore the curse of the law in our place. And God raised him up on the third day and he stands before you today. And if you would bend the knee before him, and I have to say as I'm looking at people bending their knees out there, you know, I just long that they would, they would bend the knee to the Lord Jesus and know that he is their righteousness. He's the justice they're looking for. He's the peace and the life, the forgiveness of sins that they're looking for, the atonement. We have that message. Let's run like Ahimea's. But when we get there, let's declare it like the Kushite. We bring good news. Yes, all is well. The Lord has delivered you. Let's come to the Lord's table.